Hello, and welcome back to the 42nd edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. My name's Reggie, and I'm here again with another hour of geeky news, views, and general stuff. So, let's start by considering what is currently happening in Ukraine. Now, you may think that this is not a geeky subject, and in large part, you would be right. I'm not about to get into the politics of it. I'm not about to get into the morality of it. I have my views, as I'm sure do you, but they have no place here. I am simply going to let Captain America say his bit. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. And we'll leave it at that. Politics has no real place here, as I said. What does have a place here, however, is the Antonov 225. I am, as regular listeners will know, a bit of a plane geek. It's one of the things I absolutely geek out over. And the Antonov 225 is a plane that has a very special place in my heart. It is, or very sadly, almost certainly was, the biggest aeroplane there was. There was only one of them. There should have been two, but only one ended up being completed. So what is the AN-225? Well, the AN-225 was a product of the Soviet space program. Uh, it was designed and built by the Antonov Aircraft Factory, which is a Ukrainian company. Obviously, back in the day, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. But uh, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Antonov has been very firmly Ukrainian. If you see the Antonov 225 in its more recent history, it wore the livery of Ukraine. It had, uh, it's a big white plane because most planes are big and white, but it had the yellow and blue stripe down the side to, to represent the Ukrainian flag. It wasn't a government thing. Antonov is a private company, but it was very proudly a piece of Ukrainian aeronautical engineering. So why did the Soviets get Antonov to build a plane that big? Well, first of all, because they could. And when you were the Soviet Union, you could do that kind of thing. But also, it was part of, as I say, the Soviet space program. Because once the Americans had a space shuttle, the Soviets wanted one too. And to be fair, although they were very much accused of ripping off the space shuttle design, and let's be honest, they kind of did, uh, the Soviets had much more of a need for a space shuttle. Because way back, way back in the 80s, the Soviets were building space stations and they needed a way to get to and from. And a space shuttle type vehicle was exactly what they needed. So they built Buran. Uh, Buran is Russian for snowstorm. And again, images and probably video in the show notes. It looked like a slightly boxier version of the space shuttle. It was, however, a little bit more capable. For a start, there was a version that had air-breathing engines that could fly itself under power, which the space shuttle never could. The space shuttle was a glider when it was re-entering the atmosphere, uh, and it glided with all the grace of a brick. It was not an aerodynamically great machine. Uh, Buran was slightly better. It also actually had a greater payload capacity than the space shuttle. So, you know, it would have been a very useful bit of kit. But the fall of the Soviet Union meant that 
it didn't ever get completed. The money was pulled. Um, once the Soviet Union had broken up, Russia simply couldn't justify spending the money they would have needed to have spent when you know their economy was collapsing and their people were starving. So the Buran shuttle was axed, which is why there's only one AN-225. There should have been two in exactly the same way that NASA had two um, modified Boeing 747 jets to carry the various shuttle orbiters from one place to another when they weren't being launched on a rocket. The AN-225 was designed specifically to carry the Buran shuttle around. And with no Buran, there was no need to finish building the second AN-225. And the uh, the first AN-225 kind of went into mothballs for a bit. Uh, and then Antonov got it out of mothballs, refitted it as a heavy lift cargo plane, and it did brisk business carrying stuff around the world. All kinds of people use the AN-225 because it could carry stuff that no other plane could. It made it possible to ship by air stuff that could be carried by no other plane. It was a magnificent six-engined beast of an aircraft. It had a wingspan of 88.4 metres. It was huge. I had the immense privilege of seeing this thing fly a few years ago. Um, back when I was a teacher, I taught in Doncaster. And very, very early one morning, I saw it take off from Robin Hood Airport in Doncaster. It was like, it was so, it flew overhead. It was so big. It actually cast palpable shade. It was an incredible thing. And if it is destroyed, and it looks as though it has been destroyed, the airport where it was parked uh, came under attack from Russian forces and um, the hangar it was in, undergoing maintenance, uh, appears to have been burnt down. Uh, there is footage, which I'll try and put in the show notes if I can, uh, if I can um, showing you know what very much looks like the burned out shell of the plane uh with you know sort of the telltale six engine configuration uh, and that's that's just a huge shame obviously it is significantly less of a shame than what is happening to the people in ukraine i make again no comment on the politics of the situation but uh my heart and the hearts of everybody involved in this show goes out to the people of ukraine who really didn't ask for this and find themselves in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And somehow it seems inappropriate to use the jingle this week, but we are going to move on to space because the Ukraine situation has a bearing on all kinds of space-related matters. Obviously, Russia is a major player in space. It, for a long time, was one of the only two space-faring nations. It is still one of the two most experienced spacefaring nations. And because of that, it works closely with a great number of countries, most of which are now applying sanctions against Russia, and most of which are currently apparently regarded by the Russian leadership as hostile to Russia. Now, it is the case that the space bit of both the US and Russia has been kind of ring-fenced from what we'll call the real world for some time. Uh, there are often tensions between the US and Russia. They have never 
affected the International Space Station, for example, which is jointly operated from ground controls in Houston and, uh, well, I was going to say Moscow, Star, Star City, which is outside Moscow, actually. But um, there is a sense that this is worse than any of the tensions there have ever been. There are currently Russians aboard the International Space Station, alongside crew members from various countries. I can only imagine that it's getting a bit tense. Now, it is the case that Russia has been stepping back a little bit from the International Space Station in recent years. It looks as though Russia is planning to go it alone, uh, or possibly in partnership with China, to develop further orbital stations. And we'll come, in fact, to the future of the ISS, which has been decided uh, a little bit later on in the show. But yeah, that's going to be a problem. Um, And also, uh, ESA is uh, being affected by this. There have been in the past uh, Soyuz launches from the European Space Agency spaceport in French Guiana. Uh, Russia has been very clear uh, through Roscosmos that it will not be launching Soyuz rockets from French Guiana for the foreseeable future. And I think the general geeky commentary on the effects of the war in Ukraine is simply it would be much better if it was not happening. The knock-on effects are significant and um, probably further reaching than you might have expected. But we'll leave that there for now. And we're going to stay in space because, as I said, the fate of the International Space Station has finally been decided. It still, to me, feels like a relatively new venture, but We've had a continuous human presence in space aboard some form of the International Space Station now for 22 years. And that's longer than any of the modules that make up the International Space Station were really designed to last. Obviously, the station took many years to build and some sections of it are younger than that, but She is a venerable old lady in spacecraft terms. There are parts that probably would be difficult to replace now if they failed. And to be frank, it is difficult, even with SpaceX's Crew Dragon, it is difficult for the Americans to get stuff, you know, large objects up to the ISS now without the space shuttle and with nothing really on the cards with that kind of payload capacity coming up anytime soon, if you know if something were to break, if something big were to fail, that would be it. And there's certainly no possibility of adding new modules to the space station. There's nothing really that can get stuff that big up there. Ariane 5 could take some stuff maybe if it was collapsible in some way. And there are ways of doing that. Bigelow Aerospace has um, an inflatable, for want of a better word, this is much more high tech than it sounds, but an inflatable module type arrangement, which it's planning to use to launch a, a hotel into low Earth orbit. But, you know, the, the, the kind of module that makes up the ISS could really only go up there in a space shuttle payload bay. And those no longer exist, or at least are no longer flying and cannot fly. So 
it's time for something new. It's time to think, what are we going to replace the International Space Station with? And when are we going to do that? Well, earlier this year, it was decided that the space station, which, to be honest, is about at the end of its design life. In fact, bits of it have exceeded their design life. It's going to be extended until 2030, until the end of 2030. I mean, I think it's scheduled for decommissioning in, in January 2031, in fact. At that point, NASA will fire thrusters to slow the station down. That will bring it closer to the Earth, eventually bring it into contact with the atmosphere. Atmospheric drag will slow it further, generate heat, and the vast majority of the International Space Station will burn up in the upper atmosphere. Bits of it are going to hit the surface of the Earth. The plan, and um, yeah, this is a... The word plan is in heavy air quotes here because there is so much that could go wrong, although they are quite good at this. The plan is to drop anything that remains of the station, anything that survives through re-entry, will be dropped into the Pacific Ocean at a point called the Nemo Point, which is the furthest point in the ocean away from land. You can't get further away from land than the Nemo Point anywhere on planet Earth. That is obviously designed to minimise the possibility that the structure will land on somebody. I suppose it's theoretically possible somebody might be hanging around the Nemo point on a boat at exactly the wrong time, but they would have to be catastrophically unlucky. After that, NASA has no plans whatsoever to have a permanent NASA presence in low Earth orbit. Instead, the emphasis will be on having private enterprise, commercial companies operating in low Earth orbit. And if NASA wants to do anything there, it'll use a section of a commercial space station to do whatever experimentation it wants to do. Um, and transport to and from these commercial stations will be entirely in commercial hands. And uh, to be honest, that process has, in fact, already started. NASA already sends astronauts to the International Space Station using SpaceX Dragon vehicles. Uh, that It has, in fact, no other way of getting people to the International Space Station unless it hitches a ride with the Russians, which, as mentioned earlier, is a bit more problematic now than it used to be. So that commercialization of transport to and from low Earth orbit is underway, has started. It is what NASA is doing already. And the remainder of the time that the International Space Station has, some of that will be spent helping commercial companies develop space station modules of their own. There are plans for a couple of commercial enterprises to um, dock, at least temporarily, space station modules at the ISS so that they can try out the technology, test things out, see whether they work, get some feedback, that kind of thing. What the rest of the countries that are involved in the International Space Station choose to do in low Earth orbit remains to be seen. Again, as I said earlier, the Russians have already started the process of taking their bat and ball home. And if they're going to cooperate with anybody in the future in space, it's probably going to be China. Those two countries having rather more in common on a political level than Russia has with any of its other current partners in space. ESA is an interesting question. The European Space Agency and indeed the national space agencies of many European countries have put a lot of work 
and a lot of research into the building of the ISS, it is feasible that a group of European countries could put their own space station in orbit. Whether they would need to or whether they would follow the NASA route and just use commercially available space is an interesting question. And I actually don't see that any of the European leaderships at the moment has any kind of will for spending a lot of money in space. The UK certainly won't do it. We have a reasonable budget for space, but it's almost exclusively focused on uh, uncrewed satellites and that sort of thing. That seems to be where Britain is interested. Uh, France just, again, doesn't seem to have the appetite for that kind of expenditure. It loves Ariane. It loves that um, Ariane is built largely just outside Paris, but that's a launch system. There doesn't seem to be the desire to get into building crude ships. Uh, Germany, perhaps, is the only other country that would have anything like enough money to to do it. Uh, all of these countries banding together could probably do something. But as I say, it is expensive. And if there is commercial space available, that would be a much more cost effective way to go. So I suspect that's what's going to happen. More on this, um, including some of the articles that I've sourced this information from in the show notes, which can be found at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Just click on the blog button and look for episode 42 of Geeking with Destination Venus. And, you know, I think there's a lot of other stuff I could have said. Um, we'll leave that there. I'll do the, the astronomy section towards the end of the show, I think. So for now, that's it for space. And so now in this jingle-free edition of Geeking with Destination Venus, we're going to move on to science and we're back in the Ukraine. If you are an old person like what I am, you will remember the Chernobyl disaster. It was properly a disaster. If you're not old enough to remember the Chernobyl disaster, uh, let me give you a quick recap. It was 1986, and Chernobyl was an unremarkable place in Soviet Russia, uh, actually in Ukraine, but Ukraine was part of Soviet Russia at that point, and they had a nuclear power station. For reasons that I think perhaps we'll never really know, somebody in the senior management of the aforementioned nuclear power station decided to do a few experiments. As I recall, they were un unauthorised. Uh, it, it really does seem to have been geeks just mucking about, which, you know, we might want to watch that. But the mucking about led to an explosion in reactor number four at the power plant. That led to a complete meltdown and a very serious fire. And uh, radioactive material was spread over most of Western Europe, um, all of Eastern Europe. And it was bad. It was really, really bad. There was a while where you couldn't buy Cumbrian lamb because it had so much cesium in it, all of which had come from Chernobyl. And it, it is impossible to overstate how bad this was. Uh, 30 people died as a result of the explosion. Um, 
the number of people who were killed subsequently by the radiation is enormous. And there were first responders, firefighters and the like, who went in knowing that just by being there, they were sentencing themselves to death. But the fire had to be controlled. So they went and they controlled it. Chernobyl has been a closed space for quite some time. It's not as radioactive as it was, but it is still dangerously radioactive. Um, and people are not allowed to live there. Um, 135,000 people had to be evacuated from the area. There's a 19 mile exclusion zone around the site. Uh, they built a dome over reactor number four to contain the radioactive material. Uh, it's been supervised by officials from Ukraine ever since. Of course it has. It's in Ukraine. They have this huge radioactive thing that they kind of want to keep an eye on. And then the Russians attacked. Uh, in the early hours of the invasion, uh, the Russian Air Force attacked the site where um, ground troops entered Ukrainian territory from Belarus and also attacked the site um, and control of the plant or what's left of the plant, this huge radioactive area, has been lost. The Ukrainian uh, presidency has confirmed that uh, confirmed that a while ago. Um, it's been reported by CNN that staff at the plant are being held as hostages. Um, it's a mess. Now, all of that, all of that is bad. That's very, very, very bad. It gets worse. Um, it, it looks as though the aerial attacks have damaged the dome that covers the reactor. And the radioactive power that's coming from there has increased significant. Now, I do not know enough about nuclear physics to be able to tell you how bad this is. Um, but it's a lot. It's, it's, it's been the amount of radiation coming from Chernobyl has increased by orders of magnitude. We're talking hundreds of times. In the short term, this is probably not a terrible thing. In the medium to long term, it's going to be a problem. Now, what we do about it is at this point, anybody's guess. Clearly, the dome that's been containing that radiation for the last 30 odd years is going to have to be rebuilt. By whom depends on how this conflict goes. That it will be rebuilt, I think, is pretty much a given. Clearly, Ukraine has no interest in having a massive radiation leak on its territory. Assuming that Ukraine doesn't get this territory back, Russia doesn't have a huge interest in having a massive radiation leak on its territory. It has no particular interest on irradiating its own people, and it certainly has no interest in irradiating its own troops. Except, uh, I'm beginning to wonder how much Putin cares. Um, it's an ongoing situation. Clearly, this is an active war zone. Things will change rapidly. It doesn't look as though anything's going to change for the better here in the short term. But we will keep um, a weather eye on this. And um, should anything significant happen, we will be sure to let you know in future episodes. Uh, links in the show notes, again, to various articles on this. I wish I had better geeky news. Oh, hang on. Clearly, I'm not going to have any good news coming out of Ukraine. So I'm going to move away and focus on some environmentally good news. Assuming we have a planet left 
by the time all this is over, the aviation industry in the shape of Airbus may have something that can help reduce the harm we're doing to it. Now, there's no way around the fact that most commercial aviation, indeed most military aviation, runs on jet power. Jet fuel is basically kerosene. It's very cheap, it's very simple, and it's hideous for the planet. There is no way at the moment of flying in an environmentally friendly way. If you fly, you are damaging the environment. It's brutal, but it's true. Now, I am not suggesting that people should not fly. I personally haven't flown in nearly 20 years, but that's not because I'm an eco-warrior. It's because I've not been anywhere, because I've been busy. Sooner or later, I'm going to want to go to other countries. And if I'm going to do that, I'm probably going to fly. And that's going to make me a planet killer. Except Airbus may have the answer because they are working on a way of ending the aviation industry's dependence on kerosene. They're not ditching jets. They're going to make them fly on hydrogen. This is not going to be quick. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but it is a very promising start. Basically, what they're going to do is they're going to take an existing Airbus A380, which is a huge plane, and they're going to fit it with engines designed and built by engine maker CFM International, which is a joint venture between the American company General Electric and the French company Safran. They're going to modify the combustor fuel system and control system of a General Electric turbofan engine to run on hydrogen, and they're going to have that, or they're planning to have that, fitted into um, a modified A380 by 2026. So we're four years away, more than four years, possibly. So nothing's happening quickly, and I, I really think that they might want to get a bit of a hurry up on this, because the clear need to get away from hydrocarbons is not now just environmental. Uh, if you have had to fill your car up lately, uh, or you've just driven past a petrol station, you will know that fuel is getting increasingly expensive because of what's happening in Ukraine. It's impossible to get away from that in pretty much any story. The aviation industry has huge fuel costs already. It doesn't want more. Hydrogen is a relatively cheap thing to produce. Um, it's interesting, hydrogen is not really a fuel. It's more of a store of energy because you've got to use energy to get the hydrogen. The easiest way to get hydrogen on the planet Earth is to use electrolysis and separate the H2 from the O in water. But that takes power. So in terms of using this as an environmental fix, that only works if the power you're using to create your hydrogen is also environmentally friendly. and that needs to be borne in mind. There is no point saying, oh, we're going green, we're using hydrogen, if the power used to separate your hydrogen out of water comes from an oil-fired, a gas-fired, or a coal-fired power plant, for example. So there's still work to do here, but it is an interesting development. Uh, I'm kind of pleased it's a European company like Airbus that's leading the way. I'm kind of sad that it's a French-American partnership that's actually building the engine, which makes all the difference. 
But it's an interesting start. We will see if other aero engine manufacturers like Rolls-Royce get involved in this kind of research. I would like to think they would, but perhaps even better would be coming up with an entirely novel way of powering our aviation industry. And I would imagine that somebody somewhere is working on stuff that we can't even imagine right now. Oh, before we move on, though, just to address a couple of safety concerns that have been voiced by people who perhaps haven't thought this through quite as much as they might. Um, It is the case that hydrogen doesn't have that good a safety record in the aviation industry. Um, I think we all have seen pictures of the Hindenburg and the R101. uh, Huge, huge airships that um, kind of exploded because they were full of hydrogen. Yeah, that's a concern. But if you're worried about putting massively flammable explosive substances onto aeroplanes, have you seen what happens when you put a match to kerosene? So we already have aeroplanes that are full of explosive stuff. And um, come to that, you ever driven a car? Because um, petrol's pretty volatile as well. These risks are easily, easily mitigatable. I mean, if something goes wrong, will it catch fire? Yeah. If something goes wrong, will aeroplanes catch fire now? Also, yes. So that's not really a, a, a thing we need to worry about. We just need to design the things to not let the hydrogen leak. And, you know, we have the technology to do that. That's not a, a, a difficult thing. So not to be complacent, but hydrogen is no more dangerous than jet fuel currently is. And, you know, we confidently get on board jet planes now. So, you know, it's not that that's not that big of a deal. Anyway, moving on to our, our next science story, because this is unprecedented breaking news. It turns out. Einstein is still right. I know, it's a shocker. Um, But he's right about a very specific thing. New research um, in physics has shown. Basically, Einstein predicted that time isn't a constant thing. Um, In 1915, Einstein showed that anything with mass will distort the fabric of space-time. Space and time are connected. And we experience this distortion as gravity. And gravity, in Einstein's theory, essentially can slow time down. Now, this means that clocks closer to a large gravitational source, such as, oh, I don't know, the planet we're sitting on right now, will run slower when compared to those objects further away from the gravitational source. This is a phenomenon called time dilation, and I try not to think about it too hard because it totally messes with my head. But it means, essentially, that if this theory is correct, if you are, let's say, an astronaut, and you spend some time on the International Space Station, you will age more slowly than somebody who stays on the surface of the Earth because you're further away from the source of gravity. Not that far, a couple of hundred miles maybe, but far enough for it to have a positive difference. Now, we might only be talking minutes or seconds over years, but still, that difference is there, according to Einstein. Now, you never bet against Einstein, 
most of his theories I have shown to be pretty damn accurate. This one, though, always seems to me to be a little bit much. So really, if I went to the space station, time would move more slowly? That sounds weird. Um, they've only gone and demonstrated it, though, haven't they? What physicists have done is take one of the world's most precise atomic clocks. This is something that measures time ridiculously accurately. Um, and they changed its height above the Earth by a whole, a whole 0 0.2 millimetres. That is uh, roughly the thickness of two sheets of paper. Yeah. So not much. And they demonstrated that if they did that, if they elevated the clock by just that much, it will show that one clock will run slightly faster than, a, than the other clock. The clock closest to the ground will run slightly faster. Now, you do need an incredibly accurate clock to measure this difference, but it is measurable. Uh, and it still strikes me as bonkers. It's utterly, utterly, utterly bonkers. Um, I'm not going to go into any more detail about this story. I am going to link to uh, a much better informed article on life science in the show notes um, because I'm really hoping that some of you will get your heads around this slightly better than I can because I can accept the truth of it. I can accept that this is a fact, that this phenomenon occurs. This I can do. Intellectually, I can do this. But I cannot get my head around it. It is bonkers. And ah, far too wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey for me to want to engage with too deeply. So I am reporting this as a thing that's happened. And I'm encouraging you to go and read more for yourselves. Because it's astonishing. Seriously, I mean, this, this is the essence of everything I love about science. It's huge and it's baffling and it's weird. And yet it's true. And on that bombshell, we are going to leave science behind. And I'm going to talk finally about some frivolous stuff because it's all been a bit heavy so far, hasn't it? We've had invasions and politicking and things being destroyed and radiation leaks. And it's all been a bit much. So still jingle free, but time to talk about comics. And there are some good ones this week. Um, Image Comics, one of the largest indie comics publishers, if, if we can still call Image Comics an indie, I mean, it is one of the largest publishers of comics in the world, uh, certainly in the Anglophone world. Um, they're 30 years old this year, and they kind of got their start trying to put together a unified superhero universe, it, kind of in... in, in imitation of the Marvel Universe. Uh, you, you had uh, Todd McFarlane, who made it big at Marvel before helping to found Image. Uh, he created his superhero Spawn, uh, and there was Rob Liefeld's, um, well, any number of superheroes created by Rob Liefeld. And they kind of all interacted in the same universe for a while, and then it didn't kind of hang together or work, and the 90s happened, and the bottom fell out of the comic speculator market that Image had ridden so well, and Image moved on. 
and became the behemoth it is now with you know creator owned miniseries across a diverse range of genre and with a couple of notable exceptions like um invincible image pretty much moved away from superheroes and he certainly moved away from the idea of a unified superhero universe and now 30 years on it seems to be beginning to have a look back at its roots and having another go um last year we got the launch of a superhero story called radiant black which quite a, a, an interesting twist on a superhero tale i'm not going to go into radiant black here um, but you know pretty good really really enjoyed enjoyed it 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 hit big with readers certainly and last week they launched um a big kind of crossover thing called supermassive which is beginning to put together a shared superhero universe and this week we have the first issue of a new image superhero book um it's called rogue song and it's actually kind of cool it's not that innovative in that we have a superhero who protects new orleans uh called rogue son something happens to him in the first couple of pages of issue one uh which causes the mantle to be passed on to a successor that's not really a spoiler that's kind of what the book's about and then that successor has to go through a series of trials in order to take on the mantle properly and i'm saying no more about the plot because i don't want to spoiler it it is really good superhero fun and i'd say it's not the most innovative superhero origin ever but it is kind of cool uh, the script by ryan parrott is pacey and you get lots of really cool teenage angst which i think is important in a superhero story uh, the art by yeah, a guy called Abel, uh, who only goes by that name. I presume that's a, a, a professional name. Uh, uh, with colour by Chris O'Halloran. is really dynamic. I mean, you you have the impression that these pictures are moving. And that we're just seeing them in a, in a frozen nanosecond. And that's actually quite hard to pull off. And I really like it. The fight scenes in particular are pretty strong so overall it's a really nice package now how this is going to fit into a shared superhero universe image i'm not entirely sure yet uh, but it looks as though it certainly could and honestly if you just want to get in on the ground floor of a new superhero character and you know be able to say that i was there at the beginning like the people who were there to pick up Amazing Fantasy 15 and see the first appearance of Spider-Man, or the people who were there to see Detective Comics 27 and were there at the ground floor of Batman. You can do that with Rogue Son. Will Rogue Son be as big as Spider-Man or Batman? Objectively, probably not, because that's just really hard to achieve in the modern climate. But is this one going to run and run? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Uh, and it, it is just good, dumb fun. And I really, really loved it. So that is Rogue Son from Image Comics on the rack this week. It is £3.50 and it is highly recommended, as is Strange. Now, 
If you have been following the Marvel Universe, you will know that Doctor Strange is dead. Now, I'm pretty sure he's not going to stay dead all that long. And the reason I'm pretty sure about that is there's a new movie coming out featuring Doctor Strange. And you know, Marvel is pretty terrible at using the movies to promote the comics. But even Marvel isn't that bad. I don't think. Actually, thinking about it, maybe they are. But now you've got to hope. You've got to hope they're not that dumb. What we have at the moment is an interim story. Because, look, look, let's just not kid ourselves. Doctor Strange is not staying dead. But while he is dead, there is Strange. Strange is the story of the new Sorcerer Supreme. Because when Doctor Stephen Strange was killed, he passed on three things to his estranged wife, Clea, who is the love of his life. He passed on the Cloak of Levitation. He passed on the Eye of Agamotto. And he passed on the title of Sorcerer Supreme. Now, this was largely a massive prank on Doctor Doom, who wishes to be the Sorcerer Supreme and who would try to take that title. But if Strange has already given it to his estranged wife, then the title is not available. Doom has feelings about this, uh, which are made clear in issue one of Strange. But Clear, who is a very powerful sorceress, doesn't actually care. So she has taken not just the mantle of Sorcerer Supreme of the Marvel Universe, but also her husband's last name. Clear isn't actually human and her people do not take second names. So she has adopted Strange's human last name, Strange, as her own. So she is still Strange and there is still a Strange on Bleecker Street in the Sanctum Santorum. Now, what I like about this is, first of all, it's brilliantly written by Jed McKay. I really have enjoyed the interaction of the character of Clear with the character of Wong, um, Stephen Strange's, don't want to call him an assistant. I think that's how he's always been portrayed. Uh, partner in magic, shall we say. Um, the art by uh, Marcelo Ferreira, uh, Don Ho, uh, Java Tartaglia, I think is how you pronounce it, and Felipe Sabrero, again, I probably butchered that, is, again, just as with Rogue Sun, the art is very dynamic. Uh, the colour palette is great. There is real movement in these panels. They tell the story brilliantly. And the story they're telling is kind of an acknowledgement that there's no way Doctor Strange is staying dead. Uh, because Clear's avowed intention is that she is bringing Strange back. The only question is how she does that. And there's also some acknowledgement here. Um, she has a conversation with Wong at one point and sort of says, you know, Steve's, Stephen's friends, you know, the, the, the tights and cape bunch. Um, how many of them have died and come back? And um, Wong's comment is, um, at this point, pretty much all of them. Which is true. I mean, nobody stays dead in the Marvel Universe. So it's very, very clear that Dr. Stephen Strange is also not going to stay dead. He's a powerful sorcerer married to a powerful sorcerer who wants to bring him back from the dead. 
And since almost anybody appears to be able to come back from the dead of the Marvel Universe, that is totally happening. This series, I suspect, is just going to be a story about how that is eventually achieved. And honestly, I've not been the biggest Doctor Strange fan historically, but I have really enjoyed this. The character of Clear, who is a character I did not really know prior to picking up issue one of this, uh, hugely interesting. Far more interested in her than I am in Stephen Strange. So, again, is it groundbreakingly innovative? Nah, nah, it isn't. Is it going to change comics forever? Again, nah, it isn't. Is it enjoyable and worth the money? Yeah, totally worth the price of admission. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed every single page. So that's Strange Issue 1, out now from Marvel Comics. Uh, it's a Marvel Issue 1, which means it's slightly more expensive than Marvel Comics normally are. So it's £4.50. Uh, I think that future issues will be three fifty, And um, worth the price. Well worth the price of admission. Thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it and to move away from marvel now and if anything just to demonstrate that marvel's not the only company that can do dumb fun well i give you dc comics war for earth 3 now if you think the multiverse is a recent invention by marvel so that they can have a doctor strange movie no 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 very definitely wasn't marvel who started the whole multiverse thing, that was very definitely DC. Who, I think they started it with the idea of Earth 2, which was an identical planet Earth, exactly opposite us around the sun, so that we could never see each other. And it was like Earth, like our Earth, but a bit different. That's where this started. There are now, in the DC universe, literally hundreds of thousands of these things. And they're all just a little bit different. The current Superman is, in fact, not from our DC Universe. He's from a different DC Universe because the one from our DC Universe got killed because nobody liked him. And, you know, that, that's just a thing that DC does. And does well, actually. And uh, currently in the Suicide Squad comic... Uh, Amanda Waller, who runs the Suicide Squad, has gone a bit weird. Rick Flagg, who commands the Suicide Squad on the ground, has mutinied with the squad. Uh, Flagg has taken the bombs that Amanda Waller uses to control the Suicide Squad out of the squad's heads, so their heads can't be exploded from a distance anymore. And they're trying to stop Amanda Waller, who appears to be trying to take over Earth 3. Now, Earth 3 in the DC Universe is a slightly twisted version of the DCU we know and love. Superman is still as powerful as he is in our universe, but he's evil and he's a, a dictator and he rules the Earth by force. Um, there isn't a Batman. There's an Owl Man. Uh, Wonder Woman is not Wonder Woman. Um, first of all, uh, Diana Diana Prince is not around. Donna Troy, who is Wonder Girl in the our DC universe, goes by the title Superwoman on Earth three. And there's lots of manipulation and stuff. And 
it's just fun to play with things that are almost familiar but not quite and this story in Suicide Squad has spun itself out into its own two-issue micro-series. Issue one's out now, and it is just joyously good fun. The script by Robbie Thompson and Dennis Hopeless is knowingly self-aware. It knows how ridiculous this story is, and it acknowledges it, but takes it just seriously enough that it doesn't insult your intelligence. Uh, the art by uh, Steve Pugh, uh, Dexter Soy, um, Brent Peoples, and Matt Herms. Again, um, that's a lot of people doing lots of different pages. It hangs together really well uh, in a way that often things don't when they've got multiple artists. There's some dynamism here. There's some great expression here. And the world building is nicely, nicely done. The whole thing is an utter delight. Cannot praise it highly enough. Again, it's not innovative. It's not earth shattering. It's not going to change the way we look at comics forever. It is a dumb story, but it's a fun, dumb story. And honestly, there is enough gritty realism in the real world right now. A bit of dumb fun is entirely, entirely welcome. But because dumb fun only gets you so far, uh, staying with DC, oh boy, Batman Killing Time, what a book. Issue one is out now. Um, it's written by Tom King, who was a fairly controversial writer of Batman. A fairly large group of extraordinarily vocal people really hated Tom King's run on Batman, which ran for 85 issues and then spun out into Batman Catwoman. Those people are wrong, though, because I've been reading Batman since 1989. And in that time, I have read pretty much, there's one or two things I've missed, but pretty much I have read every single comic that's had Batman in it. I don't think I have read better Batman stories than the ones written by Tom King. I think the issue was that that wasn't always apparent while you were reading the story because King used incredibly slow pacing, which really wound a few people up. And, you know, fair enough, I can't argue with that. But when you take King's run as one huge 85-issue story arc, which is basically what it was, oh boy. It was fantastic. And that run then continued into Batman Catwoman, which has not finished yet, and which is providing a definitive ending to Batman's story. And that is astounding. And now we have this. Um, written by Tom King. Um, art by uh, David Marquez with colour by uh, Alejandro Sanchez. I'm not going to tell you a single thing about the story. Just trust me, it's completely gripping. It's beautifully, beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, it's tense. It's got high stakes. There's huge tension. 
their suspense. It's it's Tom King at the top of his game, and that is high praise indeed from me. And then the art. Oh. Now, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. The name isn't familiar to me. I don't know that I know David Marquez as a writer. And probably if I check this out now, I'll discover that I've been enjoying his art for years. But this is next level stuff. It is just gorgeous. It's not just dynamic. It's not just expressive. It's also beautiful. Every single panel moves. Every single panel has real emotion on the faces of the characters. You can look into the eyes of these characters and see what they are thinking. It's beyond extraordinary. I cannot praise this highly enough. And I know I've said that about other stuff, but this on every level is the best comic on the rack this week. It's probably the best new Batman story since Batman Rebirth. Um, if we're talking ongoings, I mean, Batman Damned was probably better than this, but that's apples and oranges. You can't really compare the two. This is how a limited superhero story should be done. It's gripping, it's thrilling, it's glorious to look at. The art is dynamic, the art is expressive. It's an absolute wonder of a thing. Uh, so that's Batman Killing Time, uh, issue one, out now uh, from DC Comics. Uh, it is £4.50 on the rack. And seriously, if you only buy one comic this month, make it this one. And we'll leave that there and we'll move on kind of back to space because I would like to uh, get up to Mystic, defy the weather. Um, I'm recording this um, in the morning of uh, the 3rd of March and I'm looking out my window and the sky is completely hidden by just a solid grey sheet of cloud. It's like looking up from the inside of a Tupperware box. It is... Very definitely not astronomy weather, but I don't care. I'm going to be optimistic. I am going to pretend that there's an outside chance that you can look up at the sky of an evening and see something fun. So what's up there? Well, annoyingly, in an evening, not a right lot. You can still see the Orion Nebula um, in the belt of Orion. One of the very few naked eye visible nebula uh, around in the Northern Hemisphere sky. Uh, if you want to put a decent pair of binoculars on that or look at it through a scope, you can see something genuinely actually quite impressive. Uh, so I do recommend doing that. There's not much else in the night sky right now. All the planets are too low to be enjoyed. Um, if you are up in the pre-dawn, and, you know, we're, we're talking 4 or 5 a.m. kind of times, I, I promise you, I love astronomy, but... Uh, not that much. I'm in bed at that time. But if you happen to be up and about, you can still see Venus shining very brightly low in the eastern sky. Um, if you look right around about now, uh, in the next few days, if you're listening to this when it drops on the 3rd of March, 
you will also be able to pick up um, the reddish disk of Mars uh, fairly, fairly close to Venus um, with the crescent moon, again, fairly close to that. Mercury and Saturn are still visible in the pre-dawn. Uh, they are getting quite faint now and very, very close to the horizon. I doubt you'll see them from central Harrogate or from the centre of any town uh, because they're so low on the horizon. Just stuff will get in the way, make them difficult to spot. Um, things are going to start picking up. Because we're losing the planets in the pre-dawn, uh, they are going to start appearing in the evening fairly soon. And um, I prefer to do my astronomy in an evening uh, because I am not a morning person in any way at all. Uh, so that's what's up. Uh, again, uh, I'll stick a link to the Planetary Society's WhatsApp page in the show notes. Uh, and also, I will encourage you once again, this is not a paid plug. Uh, I am just a proud member of the Planetary Society and uh, like to promote them. Uh, I will also put details about how you can find about, about the work of the Planetary Society. Um, maybe join if you have a mind. Uh, all in the show notes. That's info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Look for episode 42 of this occasionally fine show. That is just about it. One thing on the Geek Community Corp board, which is only of interest to people who are in Harrogate or able to get to Harrogate relatively easily and who are listening to this on the day it drops on the 3rd of March. Because if you're listening at that time tomorrow, that is actual tomorrow, Friday, the 4th of March, you might want to go and have a look at Harrogate Theatre. Because tomorrow, for one night only, Friday the 4th of March, Ransack Theatre presents Catching Comets. This is a play about a kid called Toby who has discovered that there is a comet approaching Earth that could destroy us all, but he can't get anyone to take him seriously. And if that were not bad enough, a new person has come crashing into his life. This is a play about love. It's a rom-com about the end of the world. It's a multi-dimensional mashup featuring a young man who forces himself to become an action hero to save the world. The Scotsman gave this a four-star review. Vice magazine gave it a five-star review. The Scotsman called it wittily written and performed with flair. You don't want to miss this. Tickets are available at the box office. Email boxoffice at harrogatetheatre.co.uk or call them on 01423 502 116 to get tickets for this. One night only. You do not want to miss it. And that is pretty much the show, really. Uh, all that remains is for me to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media, proudly engineered in a cold, damp, grey little section of Yorkshire. We'll be back next week with more of the same, hopefully better news in our new segments than we've had this week. Uh, until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Ja, Ukrainio, Ostan, Russia. We'll see you all next week. So we do. You take care out there. Stay geeky. <laughs>